Hey, we're going to take a break from our verse-by-verse studies through the book of Matthew today. Our pastor is out of town, and so you can start finding your way over to the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible. And while you get there, let's, let's talk about Mona Lisa for, for a minute. Leonardo da Vinci's Mona Lisa, it has been acclaimed as, quote, the best known, the most visited, the most written about, the most sung about, the most parodied work of art in the world. It is believed to have been painted sometime around the year 1503. However, there has been considerable argument over both the subject of the painting and the identity of the model who sat for it. There are at least seven different theories of of who it was that Leonardo da Vinci was looking at when he painted the Mona Lisa. And one of those theories is that da Vinci used himself as the model, that he painted himself as a lady for some reason and uh, used himself as the model. Now, A lot of us have heard of that before, but here are a couple of facts you may not know about the Mona Lisa. In 1956, it was twice damaged while it hung on the wall in the museum. The first time, a vandal came in and threw acid at the painting for some reason. And then later that year, someone else threw a rock at the painting, causing damage that required restoration below the elbow. Uh, After these events, bulletproof glass has since been installed in front of the Mona Lisa there in the Louvre, and it has shielded it from a spray paint attack in 1974 and potential damage when a terracotta mug was thrown at it in 2009. Apparently, the story in that one was uh, a lady was trying to get French citizenship. She was denied. So in response, in protest, she went to the museum there and bought a mug at the gift shop, walked over to the Mona Lisa and chucked it at it, not realizing that there was bulletproof glass in front of it. Now, one more interesting piece of trivia that I didn't know, and I found this uh, immensely enjoyable to read about. The Mona Lisa was once stolen and missing from the Louvre from 1911 till 1913. There was an Italian gentleman who worked as an employee at the museum there, and he decided he was going to hide in a broom closet one day. He went to work, he hid in a broom closet, and then when the museum closed, none of the paintings were locked down or anything like that. He just picked it up off the wall, put it under his coat, and walked out. And the reason why, some people suggest that he was doing it for monetary gain, but his stated reason was that as a Italian patriot, he felt that, that the painting should be on display in Italy rather than France. And so for two years, it was on display in different places. He eventually did try to sell it, and that's when he got arrested. But in Italy, he was hailed for his patriotism, and he served just six months for the crime. You know, for a piece of, of canvas that's hanging on a wall night and day, a little, you know, a little portrait, this thing has a lot of history there, right? I mean, and it's, it's a piece of art that we've all at least seen a representation of at some point in our lives. Now, here's where we get started. It's in Ephesians chapter two, it's verse 10. Let me read it to you. It says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. When we look at our lives as Christians, for those of you who are believers in Jesus Christ, you've been born again, the Bible describes you and I as master crafted workmanships of God. That he as this this master creator, this master builder, this master artist is is handcrafting a, a particular workmanship out of your life. But the difference between our lives and the workmanship of, say, Leonardo da Vinci or any of the other great artists of human history is that we don't just hang on a wall to be looked at. You know, the end result of the Mona Lisa is that it's supposed to hang somewhere or just be looked at. And it's admired and that's fine and that's a great thing. But our lives as workmanship in the hand 
commands of God is meant to be much more than that. We see in the Bible, and we see there in Ephesians chapter 2, that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Um, And that's what the Lord desires for us as his people. And as we see his plan and his methods as revealed in Scripture, we find that there is a very peculiar arrangement that he has set up for us. You know, we're handcrafted by God, not just to be admired, but to be a tool in his hands. We're meant to be useful works of art. There's really not a lot of useful works of art in our culture. And even stranger than that, in a, in a strange way, God opens up his plan and his will to include us in the process of handcrafting our lives to be this beautiful workmanship. He gives us the option to participate and cooperate in that process. It's a remarkable, remarkable thing. The Bible says, here's what God is doing in your life as a Christian to craft you and, 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 and make you into a sanctified, conformed part of the body of Christ in the image of his son. And here's how you can be a part of that process. Here's how you cooperate and participate. It's like a painting that assists the artist in making itself a masterpiece. And we are encouraged to cooperate in God's craftsmanship, for example, by letting the mind of Christ be in us. We cooperate by abhorring what is evil and clinging to what is good. We cooperate by magnifying Christ in our words and our actions, by taking the form of a bondservant. Those are all things that we're given in the word that say, hey, here's how you do what God is accomplishing in your life. That's how we obey and participate participate in that command to be transformed, and that's the perfect will of God for you. Now, there's a passage in Exodus that I want us to think about this morning, and it gives us insight into how all of this happens. I mean, we've all heard that, you know, the Lord is is working in our lives and that he's a plan for our lives and a will for our lives. Okay, well, how does that happen? How does the Bible describe that process? It's Exodus chapter 31, verses 1 through 11. Gives us some interesting thoughts to think. And as you make your way there, let me give you some quick context, which I think is important. Here in Exodus 31, it's in a long section of the book where Moses is up on top of Mount Sinai meeting with the Lord and he's receiving instructions from God about the law and the system of worship that would be established in the tabernacle. The tabernacle is the tent of worship that would be constructed and set up and move with them, the children of Israel, as they traveled to the promised land. The Lord there on Mount Sinai had brought Moses up and he said, hey, here's what I'm doing. I'm going to establish a new nation, a new system of worship, a new set of laws. I'm, I'm building and constructing a whole society based upon me and the worship of me as I lead you as my people into the promised land. And, and we're in that section right there here in uh, Exodus 31. And so our verses show us the process of God by which he crafts your life while also using you for his purposes. And so let's look at our text here and see what we see. Starting in verse 1, it says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, See, I have called my name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all manner of workmanship, to design artistic works, to 
to work in gold, in silver, in bronze, in cutting jewels for setting, in carving wood, and to work in all manner of workmanship. And I, indeed I have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahisamach of the tribe of Dan, and I have put wisdom in the hearts of all the gifted artisans, that they may make all that I have commanded you in the tabernacle of meeting, the ark of the testimony, and the mercy seat that is on it, and all the furniture of the tabernacle, the table and its utensils, the pure gold lampstand with all its utensils, the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, and the laver and its base, the garments of ministry, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons to minister as priests, and the anointing oil and sweet incense for the holy place, according to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. Before we go any farther, let's just pray for a moment. Lord, thank you for this morning, and, and Lord, thank you for your word that it speaks to us, that it is alive and powerful, and that you desire to use your word this morning to cut into each and every heart here, Lord, to speak to us about who you are and what you desire for our lives. And so we pray, Lord, that for each of us, that you would bring encouragement and direction and correction, Lord, for how we can be responding to you the way you desire, how we can be cooperating with you in the work that you desire to do in our lives. Lord, we don't want to be slow in our pace following after you. We don't want to miss opportunities or miss things that you have uh, intended for us. And so help us, Lord, to understand what it means for us to be your servants and to be your workmanship. And help us to see what a great and awesome God you are, how full of mercy and grace and love and provision you are for us. In your name we pray. Amen. And so this morning, there are four simple insights I want us to think about into the way that God takes our lives and transforms them to use them, this workmanship that we're told about in Ephesians. The first idea is found in verse two, and it's that God calls you by name. Look at verses one and two again. It says, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, see, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. You know, it was Valentine's Day not too long ago. Isn't there a powerful and profound difference between a real Valentine and a forced Valentine? A forced Valentine is worth zero. It's worth nothing. There's a real difference. You know, in school, they make you bring a Valentine for everyone in the class, right? You think, okay, I got 30 kids or 100 kids in my class, uh, and you, I have to fill out a little Valentine, and, and, and if you don't bring Valentines for everybody, man, there's going to be trouble. There's going to be trouble because everybody needs to bring a Valentine for every single person in the class. But when that happens, it, it's kind of like when they just print more money or when the Fed pumps money into the economy. Here's what we need. We just flood more money into the system. Well, it devalues the whole thing. It takes the one card, the one dollar you have, and it devalues it. Because it's not real. It's not sincere. It's a forced valentine. And a forced valentine is a worthless valentine. We understand that. But maybe this year you got a real valentine from someone. Maybe your spouse or a significant other. Maybe a secret admirer is one that had your name written on it by someone who loves you. Now that is a special thing. That's what Valentine's Day is all about. Because it's not general, it's not forced, it's a specific affection directed toward you by someone and it warms our hearts when that happens. Now when we read the Bible, 
we find that God is not impersonal, but that he has an incredible specific love and affection for you. If you're here today, everybody in, in the world, but if you're here today, God has an incredible specific love and, and affection for you. And yes, God loves the whole world. He draws all men to himself, that's true. But we also see in scripture that there is a great specificity in his mind concerning you. In his mind, you are the guy or you are the girl for some particular point part of his will and his kingdom. He knows your name. He calls you by name. And here's the thing. God doesn't reserve his specific thinking, his specific, specific affection for just a few super saints or a few you know, significant people from our perspective. It's not that there's a small group of starters that God calls to, to do the real plain and that the rest of us are just bench warmers. No, here's what God says to us as individuals in his word. This is John 10 verse 3. It says, to him the doorkeeper opens and the sheep, that's us, hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. God knows you by name. Now we sing about that and we know that and we read about it and we, we've heard that a lot of times, but if we pause for a minute and realize that the creator of heaven and earth the eternal God, he knows you by name. He cares about you. He's numbered the hairs on your head. He has an incredible specific affection for you as a person. And he knows exactly who you are, not because he's so powerful and he has to, yeah, I know everybody. He knows exactly who you are because he wants to know who you are, because he has love for you. That's the personal nature of his love for you as revealed in the Bible. And it's easy for us to think of God impersonally. You know, I mean, we're kind of programmed culturally and, and we just kind of think of 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 God impersonally from time to time, but that's not how God describes himself to us. He has revealed himself as a God of specific, personal, intimate love for individuals. What did he want to do in the Garden of Eden? What was God's intent? His intent was to make man and woman there and to come and walk with them in the cool of the day talking with them and relating with them and having, having this personal affection one with another. And that's his desire for you as well, to have that personal relationship. And, and towards that end, he calls you by name. And we find that he has called each of us by name to become his children and citizens of his kingdom. And as we read in John chapter 10, he calls us so he can lead us. He says, you're God is like the shepherd and you're like the sheep and he calls his sheep by name so that he can lead them in a specific direction to a specific destination. That's his desire for your life. His desire is to lead you. And the way that God leads his people is found in verse three of our text. Let's read it. It says, I have filled him with the spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all manner of workmanship to design artistic works, to work in gold, in silver, in bronze, in cutting jewels for setting, in carving wood, in, and to work in all manner of workmanship. And so God leads us by calling us by name and then filling us with his Holy Spirit. He says, okay, I've called you, I got your attention, you're following after me, and now I fill you with my Holy Spirit. 
And what we learn is that we are filled with the Spirit of God, not just to feel something, but to do things for the Lord as his servants and representatives on the earth. He says, you're my workmanship. And what that means is that I'm going to be conforming you into the image of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to be shaping your life so that you can walk in those good works that have been prepared beforehand. And he says, I make a workmanship out of you to go do more workmanship. Notice that there in the end of verse five, to work in all manner of workmanship. And so we're filled with the Holy Spirit, not just to feel something, but to do things for the Lord as his servants, to walk in those good works that God has prepared before us. You know, in verses four and 11 of our text, we see a lot of doing involved, a lot of work. And we're gonna talk about this more in a moment. But there's a lot of work to do. Here in the tabernacle, there was a long list of things that needed to be accomplished. Man, Moses must have been getting writer's cramp writing it all down. He's like, okay, now what? Okay, now that has utensils and this table and it has utensils and the lampstand and it has utensils and writing it all down and listing it out and realizing how much work there was to do. But it's incorrect for us to think that being filled with the Spirit is mainly an experiential thing for us to feel. Uh, The Holy Spirit does give us personal peace and joy and comfort in our heart. The Holy Spirit does minister to our hearts in ways that we we feel and and, and ways that impact our thinking, obviously. Uh, However, when you look at the work of the Holy Spirit, the filling of the Holy Spirit in the Bible, though there are obviously personal benefits to that, you find that the Bible describes people as filled with the Spirit of God, whether they're in the Old Testament or the New Testament, they are always people who go out and do God's work after they are filled. They're used for his kingdom in observable ways by walking in good works. Let's think of a couple from the New Testament. Zacharias and Elizabeth, the parents of John the Baptist. Separately, they're described as being filled with the Spirit of God. And each time they are filled with the Spirit of God, they prophesy, they speak forth the Word of God. Elizabeth encourages Mary and and is teaching her. Zacharias, he prophesies and teaches and encourages others as well. In Acts Acts chapter two, maybe the most famous passage in the Bible about the filling of the Holy Spirit. There, the people in the upper room were filled with the Spirit. What did they do? Did they just feel something? No, they began preaching to the crowds who had gathered about the wonderful works of God. Peter and the other disciples are described as being filled and immediately receiving boldness to go and preach the gospel. And perhaps most importantly, we read in the first four books of the New Testament about Jesus, and it often says being filled with the Spirit. Jesus being filled with the Spirit is, as a result, led to move and to do and to speak in a variety of ways. It says, hey, Jesus filled with the Spirit went out to the wilderness. Jesus filled with the Spirit did this. Jesus filled with the Spirit did that. As an example to us of what it means to be filled with the Spirit of God. Now, here's one way the filling of the Holy Spirit is described to us in the book of Ephesians. This is in chapter five, starting in verse 18. It says, be filled with the Spirit. And then it goes on to describe what that means. It says, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. And so a Christian by definition, is meant to be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
and we're not filled to do nothing, and we're not filled to just feel something. No, we're filled in order to accomplish what God sets before us to do. That's always the pattern that we see in the Bible. We're filled either to worship or to preach or to walk in the good works that he sets before us. And so if I look at my life and I look at my regular day-to-day living and I see that I am not about the Lord's business, there's something terribly disconnected in my heart because the Lord says, hey, you're a Christian and here's what a Christian is. Here's what a Christian does. Here's how a Christian is filled. Here's what that means. And if I can look at the scriptures and apply them to my life and say, okay, does this line up with what happens in my life? And if the answer is no, then I have a problem because the spirit of God is said to be our helper who will teach us and enable us to go and do what our shepherd, our master is telling us to do where he is leading us to go so that we can walk in those good works that God prepared beforehand for you and I. And so God calls us by name. He fills us with the Holy Spirit. And then we see this in verse six. It says, and I, indeed I, have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahissamach of the tribe of Dan, and I have put wisdom in the hearts of all the gifted artisans that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tabernacle of meeting, the ark of the testimony, and the mercy seat that is on it, all the furniture of the tabernacle, the table, its utensils, the pure gold lampstand with all its utensils, the altar of incense, the altar altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, the laver and its base, the garments of ministry, the holy garments for Aaron the priest and the garments of his sons to minister as priests and the anointing oil of sweet incense for the holy place. Now the key insight from these verses I want us to think about here is that the Lord appointed Bezalel, Aholiab and many other gifted artisans, he says, to get this work done. That term appointed, it's an interesting term, isn't it? Now, I'm not a language scholar, uh, and we don't think or believe that you have to know the original languages in order to really understand what God is saying. You, know, you can get yourself into trouble when, you're, when you think that, okay, well, I have to go figure out what this Greek word means, and this is the only thing that this Greek word means, and, and, and that's not the case. However, we can look at these words and, and, and realize that the Lord speaks specifically on purpose. And, and we can see something interesting when we discover how the Lord uses this term in other places in Scripture and, and what it means. When someone is appointed, something is given to them. The word means to give or to hand down or to turn into. Now, we're familiar with this idea, especially at, say, the federal level of our government, right, where the president appoints a cabinet member or or an ambassador. What does he do? He takes a person and he gives them a commission and he turns them into an ambassador or an officer, not only to fulfill a role, but to represent with authority as well. That's the idea. The the person with authority takes another person and says, I'm giving you not only a role to fill, but the authority to fill it, and I'm turning you into an ambassador. I'm turning you into an officer. And God was appointing these artisans for this work. And it was the same word that he used when giving the Garden of Eden to Adam and Eve to tend way back in Genesis chapter one. He said there he was giving them, same word, every herb, every tree for food and explaining to them how their lives are gonna work there in the garden as people who were meant to tend the garden on behalf of the Lord. Now, in our text here, notice the specificity. The Lord says, look, you are the guys. These are the guys. 
I want Bezalel, I want Aholiab, and I want these other giftless artisans, and here's what I want them to do. The Lord didn't just say, here's the laundry list, get it done. He said, no, 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 I've already been working on the hearts of the following people in order to do the following things. And, 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 and it was a specific artisan for specific assignment. As we live the Christian life, it is easy for us to think that God wants us to be religious in general ways. And there is a pattern of life that we're called to in the Bible, obviously. But beyond that, the Lord wants each of us to fulfill a custom-made service that he has handed down for us specifically. He looks at your life as one of his sheep, one of his children, one of his servants. He says, yeah, I have a specific custom-made service that I want you to fulfill. The Bible explains to us that you, as a Christian, are not a faceless, nameless drone or cog in God's machine. Not at all. But much to the contrary, it explains that you are a hand-picked ambassador, that he is appointed to represent himself in a specific time and place for his good pleasure. He knows exactly who you are. He knew who you are and who you would be and what you would do since before the foundations of the earth. And he says, yeah, I've handmade a path for this person to walk. There's a general way of life we're all to follow, obviously. There's a general path of righteousness that the Lord calls us to. But then he looks at your life and he says, yeah, here's the specific steps that I've prepared for you to take if you are willing to walk with me and follow me where I'm going. Think about ambassadors for a minute. They're chosen for a reason, right? Now, we may not always like the reasons, especially when, you know, the president isn't the guy we voted for, okay? When everybody complains about all the appointments and then complains about the ambassadors, that's all fine. But we understand the idea. The president chooses an ambassador for a reason. He doesn't just say, write a list of names down, cut them up, put them in the hat, I'll pull that name out of the hat, and that's, that's who it's going to be. No, he sits down and he says, okay, here's a spot Here's who I want to do it. Not just a person at random, not the first person I see on the street, but I'm picking someone for that role. He picks someone specific for that position. And, and we understand that, and we understand that the Lord chooses you for good work specifically. Why? Well, because there's work to be done. The Lord says, man, there is a lot of work to do on this earth. There's a lot for us to do and to say on behalf of our king. The Lord says, hey, I'm going to heaven to prepare a place for you where you're going to spend eternity. In the meantime, I need you to stay here as my body on the earth. I'm going to send my helper to go with you and empower you and lead you and direct you so that you can accomplish the work and, and spread the word and represent me here on the earth. And as we set out on that work, notice from the text here how God has appointed us not only for specific assignments, but he has appointed us to be a part of a community of people who are all serving him and serving one another. There are no free agents in God's economy. There's nobody who's just, hey, I'm, 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 off. I'm a freelancer. I'm a freelance servant of the master. No, there's no such thing. There's no such thing as a freelance servant. You belong to the household. And the Lord says, hey, I'm appointing, hey, Bezalel, I'm appointing Aholiab to be an artisan to also build, but to help you and to assist you. I'm appointing you all together into a community to serve one another. 
We are expected as Christians to be a part of a local church where we can serve one another and be supported. It's essential for us. And we need that reminder because more and more it's becoming popular, especially in our culture to think, I, I don't really, if the church isn't serving me in the, in the style that I want to be served, well, then I don't need it. Now, a major Christian author recently in the last couple of weeks New York Times bestseller writes tons of books as well-beloved in, in my generation just announced, hey, I'm done with church. I'm still a Christian, but the, the church has failed. I don't need the church. And he, that's gonna send a lot of influence to his readers. Now, we would say, you know what? The, the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. The church hasn't failed. Maybe individuals within the church need correction, or maybe specific local churches are are doing things that we wouldn't agree with, but in general, as a Christian, you are called to be in a local community. So whether you're in Hanford, whether you move to the other side of the world, the Lord says, yeah, I want you to be, I've appointed, I've turned you into, I've given you a community to be a part of. You're a living stone that's meant to be built together with other living stones. And so, It's important that we understand that because it's essential for us to be a part of the church in the local setting as well as in the global setting. Now, here we see that these guys are called gifted artisans. Now, that sounds fancy, but all it really means is that these guys were hands-on builders. That's what an artisan is, a hands-on worker. And the Lord said that he had gathered these guys up to do all sorts of stuff. They'd be working with gold and silver and bronze. They'd be bringing jewels from rough to ready. They'd be building the Lord's house and setting up the ark of testimony and getting the lampstand shining and making the utensils and the furniture and the clothing. And what we learned devotionally speaking is that as God's people, there is a lot of work for us to do. There is more work than we have energy to do for the kingdom of God. There is more opportunity than we have time or effort for the kingdom of God. The Lord said, man, you guys are gonna do more work than I could ever do because there's gonna be lots of you and because you're gonna cover the entire globe. And there's always a work for us to do as we're led by the Spirit. There's all kinds of work, more than enough to go around. And the Lord desires that we be a part of that work, not just generally, but specifically. Some shovel, some jewel, some forge has your name written on it. We see this happening in the book of Acts a ton of times, all all the time in the book of Acts, where some diamond in the rough had a specific man's name on it. And then the Lord said, I'm going to use you to bring that jewel from rough to ready, to bring that person into the kingdom. Paul was specifically appointed, the Bible said, to be an apostle to the Gentiles. Peter was specifically appointed to go and talk to Cornelius one afternoon. Philip was specifically appointed to run into an Ethiopian eunuch on the desert road. He says, yeah, you are the guys. He doesn't just send out a general call and say, hey, First warm body that shows up, I just, need, I just need the first warm body to get out to the road in the desert and wait for the Ethiopian eunuch. No, the Lord says, no, Philip, here's how I want to lead you today. I want you to go and sit down on the road in the desert and just wait. And I have this, this jewel's name, has your name written all over it. I want you to bring that, that, that jewel from rough to ready. Bring them into my house. And, and Philip did just that. Now, this is how God's work, God works. These are the kinds of things God wants to do in your life as he fashions you into his beautiful, useful workmanship. It's what he wants, and of course, we want what God wants. So what does it take on our part? 
What can we do today to cooperate with the Lord? Well, let's finish out verse 11. Very simple. According to all that I've commanded you, they shall do. There's a very specific plan. There's a very specific set of commands he wanted them to follow. And what the Lord wants is for us to walk obediently, filled with the Spirit in the direction that he leads. And if we do that, then he shoulders the rest of the work. This whole situation is really interesting. It's really incredible to see how God was working with the people, what he was expecting of the people, how he met the people, what he provided for them. Look here at how he accomplished the work he gave them to do in Exodus 31. He gave them the model. He gave them the blueprint for how to do the work. He gave them, he said, the wisdom, the understanding, the knowledge they would need. He would provide the resources necessary by stirring the hearts of the people to give in a few chapters. He gave these guys co-builders to help one another out. In verse six, we see that he gifted them. He said, hey, I've gifted artisans to do what I'm asking them to do. He called them by name. He filled them with his spirit. He appointed them for the work. And that's all they needed in order to do what they had been set apart to do. The anointing of God was their equipping. God had provided everything necessary in order to do this incredible work. Now, what we see is that God would accomplish the work through obedient vessels, but there was a lot to do, a huge amount of work to be done, but it was all doable because of the power of God, but this was a large-scale plan that the Lord had laid out, and so what does that mean for us? It's a reminder that the Lord didn't just save us as individuals in order to give us access into heaven. Of course, that's part of it, perhaps the main and most important part, certainly the part we're most thankful for. But that's not the only reason God saves our souls, not just to give us access to heaven. If that's all the Lord wanted to do through salvation and through the cross, then as soon as a person got saved, then he would just take them home. Why would he wait? Well, he waits because he says he wants to make something of us. He says, I'm gonna make you into a workmanship, something beautiful, something useful. Individuals who are called by name and filled with the spirit and appointed to serve in the kingdom of God and make eternal differences in the lives of others. Starting now, as we accomplish the good works that he has prepared beforehand that we should walk in. That's what he wants, that's what he says. And so the question is, will we be obedient to what God wants? Will we walk worthy and circumspectly as our shepherd leads us forward? He calls us by name and he leads us forward and then it's up to us whether we're going to follow after him. Now, to follow him, we simply need to be filled with the Holy Spirit and obey. Obedience, we understand, but so how am I filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, it's not magic. We're told in the Bible, very simply, be filled with the Holy Spirit, meaning it's something we all can do. It's not that it's some secret thing that only, you know, one or two people have figured out. The Bible says, hey, to all Christians, hey, be filled with the Holy Spirit, So how do I do that? Well, practically, we're filled with the Holy Spirit when we're filled with the word. The Spirit inspired the word and he has given it to us so that we can write it on our hearts and apply it to our lives and be transformed by it. We are filled with the Holy Spirit by gathering together and meeting with the Lord. You know, he says that when we do, when we gather together like this, he will meet with us in a unique and special way. It's the Lord says, hey, I'd love to have a meeting with you later today. And then it's up to us whether we're going to show up to those meetings. And we're filled with the Holy Spirit when we submit to his still, small voice and say, okay, the the Spirit is speaking to me. I'll say yes. I'll say yes to the Lord. I will do what he's asking me to do. I will obey. 
And we understand God's intentions and we ever, even understand his process as we see it here in the word. He shows us in the scriptures how he crafts us as his workmanship. And we see that he involves us in the process. He says, craft with me. Let's cooperate together in this wonderful work of art. And so the question is this, when I look at my life, understanding what the Lord has uh, constructed for me and understanding what my potential is from the pages of scripture, the question is, what am I working on? Whatever canvas I'm painting on today, through my words or my efforts or my plans, are they according to the plan and the will of God? Is it part of the workmanship that God is working on? Or am I working on something else? You know, in the tabernacle, we see all this stuff being built, all these different things on this list, and almost everything was anointed with a very special perfumed oil, and this perfumed oil was only allowed to be used there in God's house. Everything had a very specific smell. It was a smell reserved for the things of God, and the Lord said, hey, nobody else is allowed to use this. You can't put it on yourself. You can't use it outside the tabernacle. You can't, you can't do any of that. It's only for these things in the tabernacle, but what that meant is that when you came into the tabernacle, there was a very specific smell of God, a very specific stink of holiness. What does your life stink of? I mean, honestly, when you think about your life, what does it stink of? Does it stink of the Lord or does it stink of something else? If I think I'm living the Christian life, but I'm not meeting with the Lord or, and being filled with the Holy Spirit to do his work, if I'm not submitting to God's word, well, then I'm no longer working on the plan that God has in mind. I'm painting my life in some other way. I'm working on some other canvas. Hey, I may even be painting something that will be as impressive as the Mona Lisa, but in the end, it's just gonna be a human work hanging on a human wall. And... Something, it's gonna be something that can be stolen or destroyed or damaged or eaten by moths. It may be something that people like to look at. It may be shocking. It may be even admirable to critics around us, but is it really what God intends for my life? That's the question. And I can't answer that for you. And you can't answer it for me. But the Lord will reveal it to you if you go before him and expose your heart to him. If I go to the Lord and, and expose my heart the way that David did and these other people in the Bible said and said, Lord, why don't you have your way? Why don't you speak to me and tell me what you want to say? Well, then the Lord does not hide himself away. He will show us whether or not we are walking according to what he has said. And that's what we're commanded to do. He's called us by name. He's given us his spirit as our helper to fill us and to gift us and to send us out to do his work. And he's appointed each of us for a specific part of his kingdom. And so we say yes to the Lord today. Be his hands-on worker. Walk in those good things that the Lord prepared beforehand for you. Be his special workmanship. That's how you not only become a masterful workmanship in the hands of God, but that is how we actually make something eternal of our days and of our actions. Amen?